Here we are now. January the 11th, 2015, uh, lecture discussion number 182 on the book of Romans. And we are back at our, after our now customary end of the year break. I trust everyone enjoyed hiding for a couple of weeks. I know you did. And obviously it's now 2015, so before I return to where we were, which was, as you might remember, the three parables of Matthew 24, 45 through 25, 30. That's where we have been for quite a while now, those three parables. The evil servant, the ten virgins, the talents, and then Jeremiah 13, Jeremiah 18. And I just threw that in for those of you who have completely forgotten, which is all of us, so don't feel bad. Before we continue on, continuing on, I thought I would make, since it's the beginning of the year, and and um, everybody expects me to make Super Bowl predictions, which I am ridiculously accurate at against the spread. Had I bet on myself, which I would never do because that would be foolishness, but if I had been foolish, which I would never do, nonetheless, we would have been very profitable in our little enterprise, but um, this is one of these buy my book prediction things, you know. Everybody has a book. They make predictions that they know are hopeless. Uh, the only value to them is that people will buy them. Uh, you might remember in 2014, I did something similar. I submitted in 2014, sorry, that the Kurdish uh, forces would survive the attempt by the Islamic State forces to exterminate them, uh, and not a particularly bold prediction, I will admit that, in light of Isaiah 19. When you understand what that prophecy is with regard to Assyria, Jerusalem, and Egypt in Isaiah 19, uh, that gives you a lot of information to digest and, and dissect what's going on currently in the world. But uh, in my defense, even though I recognize uh, the that prophecy very well, I hope. Many so-called uh, in the political professional class, they were adamant that the Islamic State would overrun the Kurds. They were also adamant that the United States would not intervene. And I said no. I said the Islamic State would not overrun the Kurds. If they had, if they do, which they won't, but if they did, they would get they would seize control of the Kurdish cities and the resources of the Kurds and the technologies of the Kurds. That's, they would be able to do uh, get control of that area for themselves. And I said it won't happen. The Kurds are going to maintain control. That was my uh, prediction. It's not really a prediction. It's just an understanding of Isaiah 19. I was confident, in spite of everyone's protestations to the contrary, that the U.S. military would support the Kurdish government. And it has. Again, not a difficult conclusion. The U.S. in recent history has intentionally intervened to create the Kurdish state. That was one of the fundamental aspects of the war against Saddam Hussein. It was to reestablish the Kurds as an independent entity. Uh, hardly anyone re recognizes that that isn't at a high level in either the military or the State Department. So it wasn't surprising to me that the United States intentionally intervened and, and uh, to protect the Kurdish government again, uh, which, as you know, the, the Peshmerga, uh, for example, the military of the Kurds are the Peshmergas, and you know that they are the remnants or the remnant of uh, ancient Assyria. In any event, I'm going to double down on Assyria in 2015. I'm going to tell you this. Not only is the Peshmerga going to prevail, but they're going to become the dominant force. They're going to rout the Islamic State forces. They'll wipe them out. Now, they have the help of the United States military. But they're going to, I think, slaughter them. I think they're going to capture the assets that the Islamic State forces possess right now. And then I think that once they've done that, one of the advantages of being in a military conflict is what? It's military development. 
The Kurds are becoming increasingly powerful. They have tremendous resources being given to them. And I, I believe that, uh, that eventually we're going to see the original Assyrian borders reemerge. And I think it could happen really fast. Just like the wall came down in Berlin or the breakup of the Soviet Union, I believe 2015 is going to see ancient Assyria rise up and their borders reestablished. And they'll further solidify their independence from Iraq, and there they will be. And that is a big deal. The return of the Assyrian state in your lifetime is a big deal. And I'm going on record now to say that I think 2015 is going to be that year. So that's one of my predictions and by my book. Next, I expect 2015, prediction number two, for those of you who are following along and keeping score. almost tripped over the holy dry erase board, didn't I? Prediction number two. I expect 2015 to be the year that gravitational phenomenon, specifically gravitational waves. You hear Bill, uh, Bill the cow, he came up and did quantum biology for you, and now here it comes with me, huh? We did not get together, by the way. We did not communicate at all. He, he isn't that lovely? I just, it's my favorite part of this place, I think. Somebody comes up in the elder, uh, presentation and his topic is quantum biology. That's just fantastic. Uh, I have done such a good job, I think. But anyway, I can't take credit for Bill. I would never dream of it. But uh, but this year, I believe that the gravitational waves comes to the center stage. And I tamp down your enthusiasm. I know I got that. But but if you prefer it this way, Einstein and Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein and Isaac Newton are once again going to be pitted against one another. And that is an extraordinary thing. Um, as you know, Einstein's general theory of relativity, it's the cornerstone of modern understanding of astrophysics. It's the foundation of the Big Bang cosmological view. But general relativity has a crucial, critical parts that are currently unverified. And frankly, some of them are unverifiable. In other words, they won't be verified. Those on the inside of the scientific community, they know where general relativity has uh, uh, vacancies, if you will. And it's particularly those areas that concern gravity. Gravitational phenomenon is an unsolved mystery. And it's important that everyone, all of you, all of your kids, people ask me all the time, what's the first thing you're going to talk to the grandchildren about now that I've got 40 or 50 of them? I don't know. So many I can't keep track. Okay, three. But they they seem like 40 or 50. Four, actually, if we're going to be absolutely uh, accurate. But uh, one of the first things I will talk to them about right now, Malachi is the oldest and he's uh, two and a half. When he turns three, Jacob becomes maybe two and and, and Obs Magabs becomes two. Then I think it will be time to start talking to them about uh, gravity, gravitational phenomenon and Einstein's theory, general theory of relativity. I'm being... Not hardly funny. I'm going to start. That's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit them down and ask them, what is gravity? How does gravity work? Who's explained gravity? Can you explain gravity? I want you to think about gravity. If I had my way, that would be the foundational, fundamental thing that every church and every school does, is spend hours on gravity. I think 2015, that's going to happen in some regard. Anyway, scientists are increasing their efforts in 2015, to prove the existence of these gravitational waves, they have decided, uh, based on the theory, uh, that uh, an accelerating mass or body should produce or create gravitational waves. So they're going to start searching, and they are searching now, but they're going to, uh, uh, in 2015, it's going to be feverish, uh, hoping that these gravitational waves 
are found, specifically in the month of July. I can't wait for July now. Gravitational disturbances is what they are. And, and they might, they hope, the scientific community hopes that they, they might originate from exploding stars. So the search will begin in 2015 in earnest. Einstein believed, uh, you see, that uh, uh, gravity behaved the same towards all kinds of matter. I won't get into that today. But if it does not behave the same towards all kinds of matter, then general relativity is a wounded theory. Already there are unexplainable conditions in the universe. For example, galactic movement or galactic motion. That's perhaps the most difficult to deal with. The most prominent problem of all of this. The movements of galaxies have been attributed to what? Do you know? They can't explain them, so they have invented something. They say that there is dark matter and dark energy. And that those are hypothetical concepts. Those are, those, are, those are concepts that originated because they couldn't explain galactic motion, galactic movement. So they said there must be because it would be required for our particular theory on the, on the physics of the universe. There must be a dark, unseen matter and a dark, unseen energy. We can't see it, but we believe it's there. That, by the way, is contrary to most scientific considerations, observations, very valuable in science. But I understand it. It's, a, it's an invention, however, to this point, a fudge factor, if you want to call it that. And a growing number of researchers are skeptical of it, by the way. You should know that as well. General rel relativity, and certainly some uh, aspects of it, is being uh, seriously questioned by a growing number of researchers because of these kinds of issues. And if those aspects uh, by, uh, are proven to be incorrect... If gravity does not work as Einstein proposed, the consequences are extraordinary, both in physics and in philosophy. Already, Einstein's general relativity is in conflict with quantum mechanics. There is no reconciliation at all between general relativity and quantum mechanics. And I know you're going to see a mountain of implausible monographs on string theory and such, but it does not solve this lack of reconciliation. There is no reconciliation, irrespective of all the people proposing uh, string theory. Now, if Einstein loses gravity, and my prediction is what? Einstein loses gravity in 2015. If I'm right, buy my book. Okay? But if Einstein loses gravity, that's going to be very problematic for the monistic, reductive, materialistic, atheistic crowd. That will be catastrophic. And naturally, I predict, wailing and gnashing of teeth for the physicalists in, in 2015. And I can't wait to share it with you as it's starting to happen. As soon as the, the articles come out on uh, general relativity versus uh, gravitational motion of, of an acceleration and movements of galaxies, uh, then uh, I'm going to be sharing it with you. We, right? We. Can we all say we? It's going to be so much fun. Invite your friends. But it really, it really will be an exciting time to be watching science wrestle with this. Hours and hours and hours of Sundays devoted to gravity. That's twice now I've almost fallen over, much to the delight of the front row. Aha! I missed it this time, didn't I? But I, I did look. Okay, finally, my last prediction. I know I've taken a lot of time with my predictions, but I just wanted to do it today because today's the first of 2015 we're in operation. Hopefully, all of you now, this is a serious subject. Hopefully, uh, all of you have been paying attention to Europe. Uh, it's in the news at uh, an increasing rate. Greece is economically collapsing, has been now for quite some time. But economic collapse is always exponential, if you know what I mean by that. It, uh, you can see it coming, and then boom, it just explodes and completely uh, destroys itself. 
uh, Terry is tire- tired of me falling and has brought me the appropriate device for which I can now place my medicine. Let's all say thank you to Terry. Can you hear, can you hear the entire internet applauding you, Terry? Neither can anybody else, so. <laughs> okay. Anyway, pay attention to the uh, to Greece. If Greece does economically collapse in 2015, Spain and Italy are likewise weak, and they are likely to be the first casualties of the Greek collapse. And that would uh, uh, that the consequences would start to reach into all of Europe. So uh, the world has been the the European Union for sure has been fearful that all three are going to fail, and the consequences will be far-reaching. As I said, if all three do become insolvent. Margaret Thatcher was right about socialism. It is ultimately an unsustainable economic system. Uh, Socialistic practices disincentivize their entire populations. Uh, Productivity, innovation, those are destroyed by socialistic uh, concepts eventually. And and only it will leave lethargy and dependency and ultimately rampant immorality. I know. Why would any country want to... We want to emulate the socialism of Europe. That's a digressing little insertion into the lecture. In 2015, economic failure is the least of the European Union's problems. As you know, if you've watched the news in the last 10 days or so or less, the Jews are fleeing. This rise of Islamic culture and the increasing accompanying violence and destruction and hatred of the Jews is pushing European Jewish people out of the mainland of Europe. Where are they going? Have you read where they're going? They're going to Israel. I predict in 2015 drastic reductions of the Jewish population in mainland Europe. They are already stunned. There are headlines now in, in newspapers that are going, all my Jewish friends, all my Jewish friends are gone. Some of the Jewish people will and, and they have head for Britain. Most will immigrate to Israel. Already hundreds of thousands of them are mobilizing. Thousands and thousands and thousands have already gone into Tel Aviv. I think in 2015, France is going to lose huge amounts of the Jew, of their Jewish population. Just, it'll, it'll go to a very small group. This has a way of causing panic. This, this will accelerate, I think, in the very... I know that irrespective, that notwithstanding today's or yesterday's million-plus people marching in Paris, that's not going to solve it. Why anyone of Jewish descendancy would live in France is... is Inexplicable to me, especially with France's World War II record. It wasn't that long ago. Why the Jews would think that France would be able to protect them or would protect them or give them some kind of safeguarding is stunning. They cannot and will not and are not are disinclined to do so. They have the history. I believe that the, most Jews in France see the same developing conditions that were present in the 1930s um, and 40s when the Jews were hunted and slaughtered in that area of of Europe for just being Jews, obviously starting in Germany, but all over that central location. I believe that Europe is uh, poised to explode. Right now, just as an afterthought, there are there's divisions in France. In other words, if I drew an artistically beautiful drawing that I do every single time of France... There it is. That's amazing, I know. You, all of you went, wow, look at him draw France that fast. How do you know that's France? Okay. Here's what's happening. There are sections of France that are now completely Islamic. 
and they are not accessed by non-Islamic people. That's already happened. There are parts of cities, large areas you cannot go to unless you are Islamic, Muslim. I tell you that that territory is going to increase. Why do I say that? Based on what? Just buy my book? Because I see that this is exactly what Ezekiel 38 says it will be. And I think Ezekiel 38 is very close, as you know. Europe is poised to explode, catch fire, begin to disintegrate. There is a big problem there. We have only begun to see a small aspect of it. Do you think the people that believe it is necessary to slaughter others are going to change their mind because people march in a city against that? Not going to happen. The opposite is going to happen. They are going to become more and more violent, not less and less. You're dealing with a mindset that is not easily explained. France has no idea what is about to happen to them, I believe. Again, I could be wrong. It's possible. But eventually, I will be right. How come? Because I have the Bible, I have Scripture, and Scripture will happen. I might not be around to see it, but I will be right. I can't help it. I I picked the one who is outside of time. I believe him. Okay, time to start the lecture. That was fun for almost no one. We were last at Matthew 25, 24 through 30, the conversation between the wicked and lazy servant and the judge of all, who, of course, is Jesus Christ. He is the judge of all. So I have this conversation between the two of them. It's a trial, isn't it? I have a judge and I have a defendant. And so there is a a trial component here, a trial element. So I have the trial of the wicked and lazy servant. Let me write that on the board so you can see ahead of time where we are going. Wicked and lazy. That's very cool. And the defendant, the wicked and lazy one, he accuses God of being likewise evil. He says his wickedness... And his laziness is directly attributed to God being evil. That's what's going on in the trial. That's his defense. We've been over that many, many times. I've reworded it for today's application. But I hope you see uh, how I got there. Now, I cannot emphasize enough the levels of complexity and the layers of depth that this conversation, this trial has, it uh, it contains. We could stay on those seven verses of this wicked and lazy servant talking to Christ, God, his creator, his judge. We could go, we could spend another two months and still not dent it. It's incredible. Okay, so understand that. This is a cursory, shallow approach to it. I hope it does it some justice. Now, to repeat a little bit, it is not happenstance, for those of you who have missed, it is not happenstance that the wicked and lazy servant uses Genesis 3.10 in his defense. That's not an accident. He says, and he says it knowingly, he knows that his defense has been used before, and he co-ops it. Now, He not only co-opts it, but he twists it dramatically. He doesn't use it in the same fashion. So this is knowing and intentional. He used Genesis 3.10, Adam's words. He takes them out of context. He puts a completely different meaning to them. And all, all the while, it's also a lie. So keep all of that in mind. But he says the exact words. And I was afraid. The words are identical. Word for word, identical. And I was afraid, and I hid myself. Hid. 
Now that should ring some bells for you, because after all, what did he do to the talent? He hid the talent. This is not an accident, not happenstance, not coincidence. He didn't make it up on the spot. This is uh, premeditated, carefully constructed, his comments or his defense or his accusation against Christ's goodness, omnibenevolence, right? And where did he hit it? He, the wicked and lazy man said, and I was afraid and hid your talent. Oh, I, I've got this. I made a mistake. Let me start over. Gosh darn it. And I was afraid and hid your talent, not myself. Adam said myself. And I was afraid and hid your talent. Adam said, put it up here so that I don't keep confusing you. Adam said, I was, and I was afraid and hid myself. The wicked and lazy servant deliberately used that format and that language with just a slight change. Where did he hide the talent? In the ground. There's a reason he hid it in the ground. Did he have any other places to hide it, by the way? Sure he did. Where could he have hid it that isn't in the ground? He could have thrown it in the lake, right? But he hid it in the ground. Why did he hide it in the ground? Where did he, where in the ground did he hide it? Lots of places to hide it. He could have hid it in a house, but he didn't. So I have two trials. I have two men. One, Adam, he confesses. He really was afraid. Ask what he was afraid of. We've been over that. What was he afraid of? Can you answer that? I hope you can. It has something to do with Eve. But anyway, Adam confesses. The wicked and lazy servant, he does not confess. He, in fact, says that God is the reason that he is wicked and lazy, ultimately. He accuses God. Adam is, as a result of his trial and his confession, he is, thank you, he is covered by God with blood. First time in the scripture that a man and a woman are covered in blood. He has a blood covering. And that is true because of what Adam says at his trial. Never think that Adam did badly there. The result is Adam is covered with blood by God. That is good, right? And what is cursed? Adam is not cursed. What's cursed? The ground is... So I hid in your talent in the cursed ground, right? See how I jumped to that? Adam is covered in blood and the ground is cursed. In contrast, the wicked and lazy servant is stripped and cursed. What he has is taken from him. And he is cursed. Obviously, Adam believed something and chose to say and believe something and do something which is accepted by his judge. The evidence is overwhelming that it was accepted. The wicked man believed and chose the exact opposite. Oops. And he is cursed. For those of you on the internet, they bought a really nice blinking green clock for me to stare at now. I know exactly what time it is and how long I have gone now. And everyone in the audience has now turned around and looked at the green clock. Oh, can you see it in my glasses? Oh, you can see it on the board. That's fantastic. This is for the first time in the history of this Operation we call beautiful downtown Cliffside. Everyone knows what time it is. And that's fantastic. I'm starting to like the blinking green clock now. Maybe I'll keep it. Okay. Anyway, with all that I just said, let's reread Matthew 25, 24 through 30. We have time because the blinking green clock has told me I have time. So let's read it again. I know we read it a lot. Well, we do. But you can't read it enough. This is 
one of those places like all the other places in the entirety of the Bible, but this one's a little bit more obvious. This is a place where you can just keep going. You can you just can't ever stop here. So here we'll read it again. I'll read it again. Then he, so this was starting the trial. Then he who had received the one talent came to his trial and said, Lord, I knew you to be evil. And you're reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talents in the ground. Look, you have yours. But his Lord, Christ, God, Creator, Judge, answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy, wicked and lazy. Not just wicked, not just lazy. Both wicked and lazy, right? Do you think that God just said, oh, I'll call him wicked and lazy? He's God. He's your Perfect words. You knew, huh, did you, that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed? You knew that, huh? Adding my interpretive element to it. So you ought to then have deposited my money with the bankers. Okay, talked about that before. Now I have bankers. Got to figure out who the bankers are. With the bankers, and at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So now I've got to deal with interest. Does God need interest? Does God need money? Trying to make a few bucks for his retirement? Try to pay off his debts? So what's going on with his interest? Then Christ says, so take the talent from him Strip it from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be stripped away, taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the wicked and lazy servant is cursed. Now, it's doubtful that anyone remembers Lecture 181. We could have a test and we'd all flunk it, especially the end of it where I began to deal with the 5-2-1. Remember that? I hope you do. Five talents, two talents, one talent. Each one of them has a meaning. Five has a meaning. I'll help you again. Five is, has a meaning of grace. It is a grace meaning. Two is hypostatic union, hypostatic union, and one is unity or deity. So there's a reason each one of them has been given this a certain amount. It's not, again, happenstance. And we did talk about the bankers and the interests, or we began to. <coughs> but today we're going to focus on the difference between wicked and lazy. And first thing you have to do is you have to ask, what does God mean? As opposed to what? Yeah, what you think. Very good. A for Becky. People have responded well to my Becky joke of a few weeks ago, by the way, so I thought I'd let you know that. (laughs) Have you been getting any mail? Don't worry. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Who is this Becky person? They were right, eventually. (laughs) But excellent response. We have to say, what are God's definition? How does God define wickedness and laziness? What's the difference between them? Not what we think it means, but what does God think it means? It's Him speaking. It's His words. It's His definition that matters, not what we think. The third slave who was given one talent was described by God, described by Christ as wicked and lazy. And thus, the most obvious of the obvious questions, what's the difference between wicked and lazy? What is God's definition of lazy? Ultimately, is where we're headed. So set aside, all of us, our modern definitions and focus on what Christ means, his meaning. And it's going to be critically important to understand the definitions of both wicked and lazy in order to do what? In order to understand correctly the meaning of banker and interest.
They, of course, are connected. So we first have to succeed on wicked and lazy. If we do that, we will succeed on bankers and interest. Now, how much time do you suppose it's going to take, um, say, uh, for us to just get through lazy? To how long? We're going to do it today? Yeah, six months. That would be Becky again for those of you in the internet. Just to get lazy defined. That's what we're going to try to remember. God Himself said this, and I want you to have some awe. Don't make any quick assessments here. Lazy is going to take a long time. It's a huge problem. What does the King James call it, by the way? That will help you immediately. What does the King James call it? It doesn't call it lazy. I'm using lazy. It was a trick, once again, by me to misdirect you. Because the King James does help you a lot. The King James does not call it lazy. Yes. Slothful. Slothful. That's helpful, isn't it? I think you will find that it's helpful. Because now, once we're dealing with slothful, off we go into Proverbs 19, 15, 15, 17, Proverbs 6, almost all of Proverbs 6. Proverbs 16, 27 through 31, Proverbs 22, 13, Proverbs 26, 13 through 16, and of course, Galatians 5, 19 through 26. That's how we start. How long is that going to take? Just to figure out why Christ called this wicked man slothful. That's what we call a good start. And as we do this, you'll begin to notice something about the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is the great dictionary of the Bible. You want to look up a meaning of a word? Proverbs will give you the definition. That's many, many difficult words and phrases are defined in Proverbs. Uh, But the downside is that most people can't read. Uh, by can't read, I mean most people can't figure out what the definition means. They can have the definition right in front of them, and they can't figure out what it means. And they still come to the wrong conclusion. And thus, they're going to fail, even with the answer right in front of them. Uh, imagine uh, debating the meaning of a word, and you tell your opponent uh, to go to the dictionary definition, and he comes back and has no understanding at all what the different dictionary definition said. So he still doesn't know what the word meant. Proverbs is the great dictionary of the Bible, in my view, but it doesn't help you if you can't read. All that to say, the book of Proverbs is seldom and correctly apprehended, and we're going to take on the book of Proverbs. We'll find that out ourselves. Okay, we'll read some of those that I just uh, mentioned. Uh, I'm going to start in Galatians, and then we'll go to Proverbs 6. And hopefully, you'll quickly, quickly figure out Um, why we're going in the order we're going. I'm going to give you one clue to start, just in case you're starting to doze off. Lazy, slothfulness, does not mean, does not mean. When God calls this man wicked and lazy, he does not mean that the man doesn't do anything. He doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean that the man doesn't plow a field and plant crops. He doesn't mean that the man doesn't have a job, or won't mow his grass, or won't maintain his car, or whatever you want to put in there. Your definition of lazy is probably a physical definition, is it not? That is not God's definition. Lazy is not defined in the context of Matthew 25, uh, 14 through 30, uh, as a physical act. Christ does not mean it's a physical act. So get that out of your thinking. That will help you get the correct definition. Why he put wicked and slothful together. Lazy in that context of Matthew 25 is a spiritual event. Not a physical event. And again, remember, 
They're connected, wicked and lazy. Lazy is intentionally by God Almighty, the I Am, the Ancient of Days, connects lazy to wicked. Okay, so let's go to Galatians and take a start at this. Probably won't make it, right? But these are famous verses for a reason. So I'm now at Galatians 5, 19 through 26, and I'm hustling. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Okay? So what did I just read? Two lists. One list bad, one list good. Make it as simple as I can. That should remind you of something. Because Galatians 5.19 is one of the reasons we have another list. What's that list called? Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? That's right. The seven deadly sins. I said that's right as if somebody answered it correctly, but I don't know if anybody did. If you did, you get extra credit. But I'm pretending for the Internet that you just did it, so they all think you're brilliant. It's been working wonderfully for many years. Okay. You must think that I didn't get medicated today, don't you? Well, I've got a little bit more energy. I came off a vacation. So I'm always more animated. What is the first of the seven deadly sins? Why, it is lust. Now, I want you to look at the person next to you while I put the seven deadly sins on the board and realize that they're guilty of them. And so condemn them for me, would you? Okay. Two, gluttony. This is my, of course, personal favorite. No, I'm kidding. Gluttony. What does God mean by gluttony, by the way? Number three, greed. What do you, number four, slothfulness. I'll just abbreviate it. Number five, wrath. Six, envy. Number seven, pride. Now, is this list in the Bible? No, it's not. But those are the seven deadly sins as, as modern, the modern concept of them, if you will, as usually defined. And sloth is on it. That's why I bring it up. Do you think anybody has an idea what sloth means that thinks they know this list. Chances are they don't. But this list, the seven deadly sins, uh, it's a a modern concept, really. Um, It's uh, been changing over time. You see it in Dante's Divine Comedy. Uh, He got it from the uh, Catholic Church around 600 A.D. They came out with the seven deadly sins. So Galatians 5, however, is what was utilized to get this uh, modern list, along with Proverbs 6. Uh, And if you compare Galatians to this seven deadly sin list, they don't seem to be consistent. And I know many of you will worry that this is going to become a Greek-Latin word study, and you worry unnecessarily. Maybe. (laughs) Anyway, now we're going to go to Proverbs 6. We're going to have another another list. List maker is going to list, right? Ah, my hands are not working all of a sudden. 
We've done Proverbs 6 in the past. I, I don't remember how many years ago I did it during some of my Judas and Antichrist lectures, so you'll remember it from that. But uh, let's look at it now. We'll just start at verse 16, but we'll have to do the entire, um, pretty much the entire, all the way, 6, 1 through 19 is what we're going to end up doing. But we'll start today at uh, verse 16. These six things the Lord hates. Another list. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Now, that is a fascinating beginning. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. So let's put these on on the board. One, there happens to be seven. That's how all of this gets together, right? A proud look. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. By the way, I believe that Proverbs 6 should be in on every single church and in every single school and on every single government building and everybody should know it. These are the seven abominations, the six things that God hurt or God hates. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. That should be on every medical facility of any kind. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. He all, number four, he hates a heart that devises wicked plots. Five, feet that are swift to run to evil. Six, a deceitful witness that utter li- that utters lies, a lying, a lying witness. So you, again, a trial element now. Somebody who testifies against someone else probably causes his execution, and it's all based on the lie. We recently had a case here in Alaska, all over the uh, all over the media, where a woman lied to her boyfriend that she was raped, and her boyfriend murdered the man. God hates a lying witness and one who sows discord. Ah, where can I put it down here? Discord. The sowing of discord. God hates those. What do they mean? What, what are they proud of here? What are they lying about? Who are they lying to? Who is the innocent blood? What are the plots that are wicked? What is the, what are they running towards? What, what is the evil that they're running towards? What is the lying witness at the trial? Whose trial is it? What is the definition of discord? Okay. Now let's go to Proverbs 19. See if we can figure this out. This is one of the definitions of laziness. There are lots of them in Proverbs. What should you do? In my book, a Bible that I have, I wrote right above Proverbs 19:15. I wrote Matthew 25:26. So I would know this is God's definition of laziness as it applies to Matthew 25:26, the wicked and lazy. Let me read it. Laziness casts one into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. He who keeps the commandments keeps his soul, but he who is careless of his ways will die. Some more questions, huh? What does deep sleep mean? What's hunger? Hunger for what? Pizza? It's not how God thinks. Is it physical hunger? Spiritual hunger? 
What's the commandment that you're supposed to keep? Is it a physical commandment? He who is careless of his ways, he who is lazy in something, you are lazy in something, you're going to die. Everyone who is slothful in a certain area will die. Go to the next one. I didn't write it where I needed to put it. I'll back up here so that I don't make a, another mistake. Now I have to find where I wrote it. Not easy for somebody of my advanced dotage. Fifteen seventeen. The way of the lazy man is like a hedge of thorns. Again, I wrote Matthew twenty five twenty six above that. Twenty two thirteen. More definition. People have asked me many times, why does he make you go all over Proverbs just to find a definition of lazy? Why didn't he put it all in an order like Webster did? The lazy man says, there is a lion outside. I shall be slain in the streets. That's what a lazy man says. When you're wicked and you're lazy... You're going to hunger. You're going to go into a deep sleep. You're going to die. You're going to say there's a lion outside. I will be slain in the streets. That's what a lazy man says. And, and you something to do with thorns. You're going to have a thorn problem. A thorn takes you back to where? Back to Genesis. So there you go. Pretty easy, huh? I have a green clock telling me that I'm done. Next week, we will continue to define laziness. But you really don't need me. You have all the pieces. And you know it's not physical. And you could look up what the person who wrote the seven deadly sins thought it meant. You'll find that interesting, I'm sure. You could also look up what most of the churches in this country say it means. You'll find that interesting. I'm mostly wrong, but it's still good to know. Let's rise and be dismissed.